Welcome to Out of Nowhere, where we talk with marketers, makers, and value creators about where they've been and where they're going next. Let's dive in. I'm Justin Watkins of Native Digital. Today, we're talking ed tech with Will from Udemy, a global marketplace providing tools that learners, instructors, and enterprises need to achieve their goals and reach their full potential. You know, if I go back to my earliest part of my career, I actually had a goal in, right when I hit my career professionally in my early 20s. But by the age of 40, I wanted to be operating a PL, uh, either own my own company, uh, you know, running a business unit, but something that had a you know full view as to the way a business operated. I'm not really sure. I've thought about this where that came from other than, you know, sounded like a really cool thing to do, (laughs) probably read it somewhere. And so I said, all right, that's going to be my goal. And as you would expect, and as most people do, I said, all right, to do that, I need to have stops, you know, around the horn, if you will, and all the different uh, functions that, that are involved. And so, you know, early on, you know, I did even prior to that, you know, operations related roles. It was in, you know, distribution, warehousing. I mean, you know, hands-on, you know, this is a product It you know, it has to get on a truck and it needs to get to a, a store before it can be uh, sold. I, you know, got involved um, into, in customer support issues to understand what that looks like and, and what are people unhappy about. I even dabbled in IT, which was probably my shortest and least productive <laughs> career building choice. But, you know, again, technology was, you know, interweaves into every business process and enables everything, you know, and when we were in the, in the 7-Eleven related business and distribution, it was all about, you know, what are customers wanting to buy? When are they wanting to buy it? How does things like weather, their demographic data influence that? And 7-Eleven Japan, which I was involved in, had this incredible POS system that captured all that information and and that was incredibly illuminating to me because that showed to me the what you can do with data if you know that you know women in, from ages 40 to 50 or 55 buy food at 2 p.m and they're looking for this that you know you make sure you have the right quantities of those products in, in your store so in hindsight it's like well of course yeah that's kind of basic but you know then it was a pretty revolutionary thing and i actually um then did market the very last thing I took me a full decade. I didn't get into a sales career until I was in my thirties. Um, I was in a market uh, research position in a company called Forrester research. And I was, I was scared out of my wits. I loved being behind the scenes and not talking to, to customers. And when the first person said, all right, you ready to handle a, you know, a quota. And I was like, you know, and, and then like, well, 50% of your income is going to be driven by that. And I'm like, well, guess what? I hit 88% of my quota. I will never forget my first year. I did not do very well. And I was having, you know, uh, pipeline reviews at home that were worse than the ones at, at the office about how's it looking this month? This, you know, are you going to put money on the table, you know, or food in and it wasn't quite that bad, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, that was really, really hard. Um, and it's some marketing along that as well. But, you know, at that point is when I began to realize that, all right, there really is something to this concept of, you know, not everybody's good at everything. And the age old, you know, axiom of surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, who excel at their function and are only going to amplify the results you deliver. You know, 
make sense, but I also hit my groove and, you know, continued to progress in my sales career to leadership and director and, and regional ownership and, and those kinds of things. So, um, and, you know, I got into an entrepreneurial bug and, you know, launched my own first company, which was something I had, you know, uh, wanted to do. And I tell you more about that, but I guess I've been doing a lot of talking here. So let me stop for a second and see what kind of further well, questions. Yeah. I'm curious. You said that you set a goal to have your own yeah. PL by 40. Is that right? Correct. And what year did you have your first PL? At 40. Did I you just, really? Okay. Yes, I just made it, but I I pushed it, but I wanted it to happen because it was it's the single longest range plan I've ever had in my career in my lifetime, for that matter. I mean, I thought I'd get married and have kids, but I. I locked in on this magical 40 number and uh, succeeded about a month before my actual birthday came across. So uh, it wasn't a big P&L, it was a few million bucks, which is not, not insignificant, but it was, it was mine. There were lots of line items on there I didn't understand because um, fin finance is one area I never went into. Um, probably in hindsight, should have gotten a little bit stronger at, at reading a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement and income. Um, but I always sort of had good people around me that excelled in that. And honestly, that stuff just bored me to death. So I didn't really want to spend any time on it. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I've always felt like if if it's boring to me and not interesting, I think I, I'm involved in enough stuff. I think I give myself a pass right. if it's really boring. But if, it, if there's enough stuff to be interested in, like just pursue that because you're going to pursue it with passion and you'll be probably be good at it. So. Yes. And I never had a finance person who was not willing to pull me back when I was painting outside the lines as they say, not illegally. I meant just like, well, you're not really looking at the profit margins on, on this. Are you looking at the cost of sales? You're you know well above in what our internal you know benchmark should be here. How are we going to get that uh, under control. So uh, it was always uh, helpful to have people that pointed out the guardrails. So you found yourself, it sounds like you took a bit of a generalist's path to find yeah. sales. And then you found sales and, and, and growth and, and have really stuck with that. Do you, looking back, if you were to change anything in your career, would you make it more generalist and have dabbled in other things? Or would you have picked, tried to get into sales earlier and, and, and doubled down and been more of a specialist? That's a good question. I have thought a little bit about that. I've had various influences in my life who've, you know, who drilled into me that, you know, be an expert, be a specialist in one area that will, uh, stand, you know, set you apart. But, you know, I, I've met great, you know, engineers who've transitioned into, you know, great leaders and, and CEOs. So there is no one size fits all answer to that. Um, I do think, I mean, I mean, I, I, I look at efficiencies and improvement that for sure my, you know, my path was a little meandering. I probably could have chopped 20% out of there. There was a few stops that were too long or they weren't really that uh, productive or I learned what I needed to do after six months, but I stayed in it for two years. And so uh, most definitely, I, th I think I could have compressed and accelerated parts of that because um, when I got to being in a sales and, and, and growth and fast growth, which is what is a sub-segment of growth because there are those that like 15 and 20%. There are others that are you know excited by 80 or 100 or 200%. And I found myself, I'm sort of the adrenaline junkie of, of sales. I like the triple digit 
kind. Um, that's what you know uh, keeps me keeps me motivated, and and that is a different set of skills, and that's something that I didn't you know I didn't plan for or account for, and it you know it took more time to get an understanding of what that looks like, what that requires, and you know and be able to execute on it. And so I've had some swings and, and misses in terms of pulling that off. And I'm pretty comfortable. I know what I'm doing at the moment. Well, you're, you're touching on a topic that I think is relevant right now because we're seeing, you know, we're in the midst of the great resignation. We're seeing people yes. job hop from, from place to place in all industries. Uh, in some cases, uh, a short stint is a short stint and they're moving on to the next one. It might be another short stint. Um, and so I can relate to what you're saying about the idea of like, you know, there's times where I stayed two years, but I probably could have wrapped it up in six months. At the same time, I think there's this uh, a complete uh, under it, what's completely underrated is sometimes digging in and, and getting through a difficulty in a non-ideal situation is probably the best learning you can ever do in your career. I mean, can you think of a time in your career where a very non-ideal situation actually led to better learning that benefited you later on? Yeah, I mean, sure. I talk about one sort of company I was at, uh, Lux Research. I was shipped off to Asia to, to open up our business there. I literally was a single employee in a, in a WeWork office space and, and, you know, had a desk. And, and, you know, when I left after three years, it was, it was, you know, 20 million or sorry, not 20, 20 people and a business that was 28% of our, our, you know, total business. And it was, you know, 5% when I, when I started. And so I had hired all these people, I had opened, you know, offices in China and Korea and Japan, you know, had a pretty broad role because unlike being in the U S I had to oversee, you know, even finance side of things and payroll and also got to buy the toilet paper and snacks for our office in Singapore, because there was no one else to do that. And even the research and the content, I gave speeches, on things that I wasn't really very knowledgeable about, but we didn't have a marketing person and we didn't have enough sort of uh, leads in terms of content there. And it was going really well. And then for family reasons, we you know, had, had children that were gonna be going into high school and we're like, I think it's time to come back to the US because it's a topic of a different conversation about whether kids, you know, where they should be educated and your network and where you go to school and all of that. But we made the decision to move back uh, hired a replacement. And then, you know, our president uh, said, CEO said, all right, well, you did a great job. Why don't you come back to the U S and I'm like, okay. And it says, well, the U S team is struggling at the moment. I just want to let you know that you're not inheriting a, a, a rocket ship. You're, you're inheriting a sputtering engine here that we can't quite figure out. So in fact, you're getting this opportunity because I think, you know, you can, uh, you know, apply some magic that you learned and, and take that on. And I, uh, so I said, all right. And I, I jumped in and I, I all of a sudden realized that there were a whole host of problems that I hadn't been able to see on the outside. But um, what I learned was, you know, there's a subset of skills and activities that, you know, cross cultures and cross teams. And then there are some, you know, very particular things that, happen in Asia or North America or, you know, Latin America for that matter that don't happen um, elsewhere. But um, I didn't know what I was getting myself um, into, um, but I'm glad I, I did it because it gave me some of the sort of turnaround chops and, and that whole skill set of assessing people, having to let people go, you know, assessing processes. And, and you know, that had not something I had done before. So I'm glad I got the chance to 
to do that and, and get things you know turned around back on the right track. But it was a lot of pressure very quickly um, as that was nearly 50% of our business. So it was a, a step up in terms of responsibility and the, and the board had a, a particular spotlight and understood the you know, US market a lot better than Asia. So they had a lot more advice. <laughs> You're touching on a piece that's a big part of your career, which is, you know, a big part of your career is uh, Japan, the APAC region, yes. international um, international business. How did that come about? And how is that, I mean, how has that benefited you? Because, I mean, international business and thinking globally is, is, is becoming more and more important every single day. The past 20 months has really proved that, I think, uh, accelerated yes. that in many ways. It definitely has. Yeah, I mean, the international component, something I, I I don't know where that came in. I mean, I started traveling internationally, I think it was eight years old when I was on a hockey exchange program to Canada, which is not relevant to my business, but that kind of sparked a, uh, a fire ignited something, a travel bug. And, you know, I went to school in, in Scotland for a year, then I went out to California while I was in California. I wanted to go somewhere else. So I went to Japan. That was the 80s. It was where the you know, massive growth was happening. So I got kind of guided into Japan versus China versus you know, Korea and other places I looked at. But I just felt that you know, getting a perspective outside of my own. And uh, part of that for me started off, you know, I grew up in New England. And New England has a particular sort of style and, of, of people and the way they operate. And I was surrounded by them and going to school in California and going to school in the UK recognized that people perceive themselves and, you know, citizens of other countries very differently. And that just kind of made a lot of sense to me and said, I really want to get better at understanding that. So I went off to, to Japan, absolutely fell in love with the place, learned the language, uh, not really expecting to, because I didn't study it before I went, but, uh, it clicked for me. And at that point I came back and I had a whole bunch of job offers and people interested in me that purpose, you know, previously were closed doors. And I went, okay, you just differentiated yourself in a huge way. And I literally, you know, uh, you know, doubled my income expectations in reality overnight because of, of my time in, in Japan and looking at my peers and what they were doing, because, there weren't many people who spoke Japanese even back in, in the day in Los Angeles. And so once I did figure that out, I said, let's do more of this because that's only going to continue to differentiate you. So uh, when it got to the sort of uh, sales, but even operations and things I was doing, I always uh, aligned myself towards international businesses. And the first major job I got was with Mitsui and company, which is a at the time, $150 billion Japanese trading firm that had operations in 150 countries. So it was, uh, I couldn't help but think and you know work in a global, but um, as a result, I've told all my kids, they have to speak a second language at some point. I said, every one of you needs to live internationally. You just need to get that uh, perspective. And back to your sort of original question, you know, the world we're in now is, is so much more global, whether you're, even if you're in you know, Kansas City versus on a coastal city, it's still a, a global marketplace. We compete, you know, for talent uh, globally now. You can't avoid that um, in the content delivery business or education space where I operate now. You know, competitors come from all walks of life and all uh, geographies. And so um, to ignore 
the global trends and, and global competition is at your own peril because they will come and, uh, and wipe you out before you even uh, see what hits you or see what's hitting you. Yeah, for, uh, it's, it's for sure. It's the globalization has, has been moving uh, along this whole time and it just accelerated a significant amount. You're now at Udemy right now. Yes. And I would love to know what drew you um, to their mission and, and the goals that they're setting out. I know uh, Japan and the APAC region it, it continues to play a role uh, with what you do there. But what was it that was sort of magnetic and drew you in? Um, the magnetic thing is, is actually their, you know, the, the mission and the, and the origin story. So it's, you know, improving life, uh, lives through learning. It's a sort of a simple concept, but it's an incredibly powerful one because uh, Aaron Bali was the, one of the three founders and uh, all Turkish, you know, grew up in a remote village in Turkey and was super smart, um, but, you know, in a, in a very poor village and his intelligence quickly outstripped the ability of his instructors and local school teachers to, to, to help him. Uh, he was fortunate enough that his parents were able to provide him with a, you know, a computer and, and access to the internet. And, you know, he was all, all of a sudden able to take courses and, and learn from people in a different location. And, you know, the light went off for him and said, everybody should have, you know, access to this. Everybody should have the ability to better themselves and, um, and it should be democratized. And what was really fascinating was that their model is, not to go out and publish their own content, but to find experts in the field who want to publish a course on that. And they act as a marketplace uh, in between and they use a curated subset for sort of corporate subscriptions, but that they completely turned the publisher model on its head and said, the biggest uh, you know, constraint is actually the biggest opportunity, which is to make everybody in the world a teacher and everybody in the world a learner. So all of a sudden, um, I look at this and, you know, the proverbial total available market is like, well, it's the globe at this point. I mean, there literally is nobody who's, who's not a potential customer, whether you're in the government uh, or a corporation or whether you're a five person company or just an individual person who wants to learn how to speak a foreign language. And so when I looked at what their mission was, and I'm, I had never had a chance to be in a mission oriented company um, and to and I, you know, it's, I have a sort of environmental bent to me. So I'm like, well, so we're not polluting the country. You know, we're not producing any products. We're not creating. So we're literally just trying to provide content. So allow anybody to get any job or learn any skill that they want. And I said, that's, you know, all right, that's a game changer. And then on top of it, um, as we've talked about all along, you know, Asia Pacific was where an area that they were focusing on and looking for some, you know, strength and leaders to help them. And then third, uh, you know, they're a Silicon Valley company and it's all about growth and very fast growth. And when I understood the, where they were trying to get and how soon they were trying to get, I was like, all right, this, this is it. This is a trifecta of things that I'm, I'm just not going to, to, to find anywhere else. So I said, I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm along for the ride and it's been uh, extraordinarily rewarding uh, so far, I mean, we've got a lot, a long ways to go yet. I fully agree with, I mean, there's a lot of investment in ed tech right now, rightfully yes. so. I think we've all realized that uh, some of the traditional models, um, we saw the cracks in that a little bit more, I think the past several months. Um, 
it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, someone asked me years ago, if you had a chance to invest in Netflix versus YouTube, which would you pick? I'm like, that's easy. It's going to be YouTube because mm-hmm. I'm always going to pick the one where it's more participatory. People can generate their own content. And it, and it doesn't have the scale as much of a scaling problem. As long as the marketplace has a good value prop for either side, it's it's a bit limitless, right? Like you you can scale up very fast. And by the way, that content's much more affordable than these big deals that Netflix is going out and signing. So it seems like yeah. it's similar, right? In, in the ed tech world, there's I love to see all of these different options out there, but you've you've got a great model and a lot of uh, momentum behind you. Yeah, I mean the incredible part is you know we're providing income streams for. A lot of people who, you know, have day jobs and, you know, just do this sort of on the side or we have, you know, there's stories of people that, you know, are at home because they have to take care of a family member and, you know, they, you know, produce a course on sourdough bread. And the next thing they know, you know, that thousands and tens of thousands of people have looked at it and it's become, you know, a standalone business that they can support themselves. And so to actually be enabling people to learn a skill uh, in, in an environment when they were at home and, and, a, and had more time than they might have previously had. But at the same time, people stuck at home, we provided them, you know, an opportunity to earn money. And, and that's like, how much better does it get? And we just have to, you know, match those people uh, together, which is what the, the marketplace uh, does. So it's, it's just uh, extraordinary, the, the impact that we're having a, around the world here. And it really is around, around the world. It's not a, a U.S.-based business at all. So part of, as I understand it, part of your charge is uh, market expansion and, uh, within within new international markets. Sure. What what would you say is uh, the value of of brand uh, when you're moving into these markets and, and looking at, uh, from what I understand, is enterprise sales yes. for the most part. What what's the value of brand name recognition that type of thing that marketing can do to support uh, enterprise sales as you're going into these new markets, new countries? Uh, I guess in a word, it's it's massive is the value. I, I mean, it is a part of every conversation, um, you know, where we're operating in, in Asia, you know, the if you don't have a brand, you don't get a conversation. The door doesn't open, you don't have that initial meeting. And so everything from, you know, kind of the top of funnel activities to just making people aware of who you are, let alone the you know the service you provide, is is absolutely critical because that reputation, uh, both even on individuals, but particularly on the corporate side, you've got a lot of very traditional clients who who want to buy from someone that they've heard of. They want to buy from someone who's seen as a as a as a thought leader and someone a brand that they can they can trust. And so, you know, we we operate in with strategic partners in many of our countries and. The you know single reason we do that is because they have well-established brands in the countries which they operate, and as a result, clients will come to them and say, "All right, this is interesting. What is this Udemy thing? All right, but we trust you, so we'll you know we'll take a meeting and and evaluate the service because when you get into education and upskilling or you know uh, providing learning and trans digital transformation." You know, you're talking about companies' core asset, which is their human resources. You're not talking about software upgrades to their computers and infrastructure. You are literally talking about you're gonna, you know, you're messing with and hopefully enhancing the the people that run their business. And and most people are smart enough at this point to recognize that is the core of what makes them who they are. So 
there's a huge level of trust. One something I didn't actually appreciate because I'm like, oh, this is just ed tech, you know, just helping people. It's like, no, you're we're giving you information about our employees and we're putting, you know, their career progressions, you know, uh, in your hands. So they take it very seriously. So brand uh, critical. We um, and and places where we don't have that brand awareness, we you know, we we get their less less exhilarating results. In terms of the past, uh, let's say year and a half, uh, are there are there uh, new challenges or new opportunities that you're seeing? Are there are there landscape shifts as it relates to enterprise sales or even international sales uh, that you've noticed you've noticed some trends or you've noticed some changes, whether it's at Udemy or other places? What sure. what's caught your attention? What what are some things that are uh, on your radar? Well, I mean, one trend that started, but uh accelerated i'd say in the last few years is sort of the you know the the buyer's education before they come and talk to you um and so i think part of it was is also been with covid and people at at home but um the amount of research that they have done before they ever reach out and say hello to you or let alone ask you a question and sort of that in, in intent or i think someone talked about that you know the dark uh, funnel and those kinds of things and um, is so important. And so that if, and that's back to the brand and the positioning. And so they have formed an impression of you long before they've ever talked to you. And um, that's caused a couple of, you know, ripple effects. It's, it's had, it's most important thing is you need to be thinking much more aggressively about what your footprint, what's your, you know, collateral, what, what, what all that stuff looks like, because, if it's not good, you know, you're kind of dead in the water. It doesn't matter how good your salesperson is because you're you're never going to get anywhere. And second, um, it really changes the tenor and the way your sales team has to reach out and engage with clients because um, if they start to jump into sort of, you know, sort of features and functions and all that kind of stuff, the client's like, no, you know, I, I, I can do all that. I, I don't need you for any of that information. It's like, why you? Why why should I even be having this conversation? And so, um, you know, and I won't go into lots of the sort of sales methodology, but so much more, you know, sort of consultative as a, as a broadest category and more about this is all about the buyer's journey and not about the seller's journey anymore. And a lot of salespeople, I think, got caught flat-footed on that. I don't think they got proper training on that and they don't uh, lose deals because they they only have one motion, which is to a little bit of stuff that we call the throw up, show up and throw up approach. And, and that that doesn't close deals. In many cases, you know, you're presented with an RFP and like, just, you know, I'm, I'm going to fill out the boxes as you talk to me. So, you know, and, and it's not necessarily the right way to buy, but that that is a very dramatic shift. Um, you know, second big shift, you know, we don't need a face-to-face -face meeting anymore. I mean, I am happy. I do this all day long. You do this all day long. I do this internationally all evening long. I get in front of, and they're like, oh, and they're like, no, we can just keep doing this. We don't, we don't need to, to shake hands with you. We don't need to look you in any more in the face than I am right, right now. And uh, you can do that in places like where I operate in Japan and Korea, where everybody said, oh, it had to be in person. Well, actually it, it does not. And, uh, you know, that's been a dramatic shift because it requires you to be a lot more uh, focused on 
what you're trying to get accomplished at each step of the process because you get targeted windows, but it's actually been more helpful because you can send videos to people. You can do a lot of activity. You can record a, your presentation to someone and, and they can share it with their colleagues. So you actually can, I find, compress some of the uh, cycle times because you don't have to gather everybody in the room. It's like, all right, it's going to be three months before I can get these 12 people in the room together for a 90 minute review of your proposal. You can do this kind of much more in a, in a piecemeal basis and and get to the, the end result you're looking for, which is closing a deal. You know, I, that's one of my favorite things about uh, the change over the past year and a half or so is, is not having to fly yourself across the country for a 30 minute meeting and talk about environmentalism, right? Like that's right. a huge sustainability perk uh, that we all realize. And it really just took everybody agreeing like, oh yeah, we can operate this way. Nothing replaces in person. Everybody right. loves it, but you also don't need to assemble from across the globe uh, just to have a meeting anymore, right? Correct, and uh, and it's frankly, you know, it's it's a it was a crutch for people like, well, you know, they're in a room and it's like, well, I've got your focused attention. They live for the plane ride and the and the and the big dinners and and maybe even golf and some of those stuff still kind of happens and other things. But most people are now like, all right, let's dial in, have a call, explain what I want and, and move on. It's frankly far more uh, efficient and, and uh, far more environmentally friendly. But that's another trend that's thrown off a lot of people who are actually like, well, I'm, they're more productive whether they want it to be or not, or they expose flaws in their own system because they're not wasting all this time, whether even commuting to an office, let alone flying to see customers. But it has hurt the events and the conference business and you and I, and I have yet to see a, a, an event online that really comes close to what you get as an in-person experience. I hope that happens and there's lots of interesting technology and money going there, but it really hasn't got there. And the efficiency you can have if you can hit 10 or 15 clients and prospects and have internal conversations at a, at a show somewhere is uh, something that I look forward to being able to resume doing. Absolutely. It makes us, I think, appreciate the stuff that we want back and then yes. rethink the things that we didn't actually need to do in the first place. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're evaluating. Right. Yes. Everything's getting evaluated at this point. Everything is getting evaluated. You're absolutely right. Office space is getting evaluated. You know, we're, we don't need dedicated desks for people anymore. It's, you know, log in, sign up for desk 127 and, and that's what you get. And it's there and it's cleaned afterwards, but it's a, it's a simpler and people now, I think when they get together are a lot more thoughtful and intentional about what the conversation and what they should do differently if it's in person versus in a virtual environment. And I think there's a lot you know, less sort of time wasting going on because people are recognizing how precious face-to-face -face meetings are now. One of the things I love about the ed tech space is that it's just easy to be to really invest yourself and your team and these growth efforts because you really believe in it, right? Like you see yes. this innovation and you see how it helps people. And our job is to distribute that out and make sure it, it, it gets out there. And so even if we are adrenaline junkies on, on growth numbers, we also believe in the purpose behind it. But yes. as you look, as you look at, you know, what Udemy is doing today and in five years and just the category in general, ed tech in general, like what, what motivates you about that? You spoke about it a little bit, but what, what do you want to see? What do you predict will happen? What do you want to see happen in the ed tech category moving forward that continues to drive you and your team? That's a great question. And uh, 
not a simple one to answer or one that I've got all of it. I mean, uh, one of the things that continues to motivate us that we look at is the breadth of the content that we can provide because, um, and the way we provide it, right? And and that gets into the duration of things and the and the whether it's interactive or asynchronous or synchronous, and there's all kinds of other bells and, and whistles, but, you know, learning in the flow of work, which is a phrase people sort of talk about, but doing things in the flow of work, it's like, how do you continue to give people the content they want in the format they want at the time that they want? And so um, what I'm excited about is, and we're working hard at this, but lots of other companies and uh, well-known technology firms that you would think have nothing to do with technology or are, are looking at this space because they recognize that if you can figure out how to put that into the sort of flow of work and then ultimately the flow of life, because we look at, you know, what are the learnings happening when people are outside of work? Because that's a big part of when consumption of our uh, content happens. And so um, that's what's really interesting and exciting is all the different ways that we will, again, provide that the content people want the way they want it and, and how they want it. And it won't all be us, but there'll be this much more complicated kind of technology uh, sort of stack and experience uh, for, for people. But um, the flip side of that is that it's even inside of our own company, uh, you know, chief learning officers, we have one chief HRO officers, you know, chief people officers is, are, are now thinking very differently about how to create that uh, experience for their own employees. And back to your great, you know, sort of resignation, you know, a lot of what we do is targeted at, uh, you know, retention, targeted at decreasing departures, you know, un unwanted departures at, at least. And so I'm really excited about what the future of our business looks like over the next few years and the future of how uh, companies do this because, because the speed of change continues to accelerate um, and the speed of technology continues to accelerate, people have to take learning in a very different proactive approach. Before it was like, you know, continuing education, all right, I'm going to go off to my event. I got to get my 12 hours and tick the box and you come back. And it's like, you can still do that, but I, I think you're leaving so much on the table if that is your approach. I mean, every day, you know, I'm learning something or I'm working and someone said something and I'm like, and I make a note and we all have a little action item list and you're like, but how do you take that? Well, I'd like to know more about that to here's a really easy way to learn about that. And then, um, you know, consume that. Right. And that's the, I think a little bit of the still un, unfigured out piece of this thing, because there's these, all these micro opportunities to, to learn and, and grow. And if you don't create that environment for employees, I think they, leave but if you have that environment for employees then they want to stay because they are you know eight hours whatever they're working goes by instantaneously but they did their job and they learned a bunch of things and they're better human and they're a better employee you know at the end of the day because of you know what you're providing and that i don't know that just you can tell it that excites me to no end to be a part of that you know sort of transformation of uh of people <laughs>